Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So here's what I want you to focus on. That's a very long passage, and there's a lot going on in there. And I can tell you right now that unless you don't want to go home to dinner, I'm not going to cover it all. It's not going to happen. But can you catch this theme, the sense of outrage, the anger that Jesus has? It's flowing through his words, and he repeats over and over again for them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and follows it up with, hypocrites, right? That they are, hypocr- they are the living embodiment of hypocrisy. And the thing is that when people thought of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the paragons of religion and spirituality in Jesus' day. They were the ones that people looked to. They were the ones that were given these honorific titles meant to bring honor and glory to them. They were rabbis. They were teachers. They were instructors. Some were even referred to as honorary father, And Jesus says, this is wrong. This is not what I want for you. Because as he points out very quickly in the passage, they have done something truly horrible. Instead of helping people to come into the glory of the gospel, instead of helping people to understand that the covenant of Mount Sinai and all of the law were meant to be a means of reconciliation, they were meant to be the way by which people would be connected, united, and reconciled to God and one another, the Pharisees and the scribes have taken their knowledge and used it to lord over others. They have used it to create ways in which no one is able to truly enter into the kingdom because they continue to heap on burdens and barriers and make it even more difficult for people to be good followers of God. And this makes Jesus angry. And the reason that we've chosen to explore that concept that Christians can't get angry is because in the time that I have been in ministry since 2006, I hear over and over again people confess to me that they are ashamed of their anger, that they feel like that they're sinning if they even acknowledge the fact that they are angry. And there seems to be across churches and denominations a concept that Christians, real Christians, don't get angry. You may have heard people say things like, the God of the Old Testament is an angry, vengeful God, but the God of the New Testament is not. And then every now and then someone will say, oh, but Jesus does get angry that one time and overturned some tables in the temple. But that's because people were doing money changing there and Jesus got angry just that once. No, Jesus got angry for 39 verses right there. It's a huge rant of Jesus telling his disciples and those who have gathered, you need to see it as I see it. Because God gets angry. And God doesn't get angry because God has anger management issues. God gets angry because God sees that human beings and our sin and, and the rise of evil from our sin creates problems and obstacles for people, for others. And Jesus highlights just some of the ways the Pharisees and the scribes have done this. He points out that they set up unreasonable expectations for people. They go around and paint themselves as perfect followers of God, perfect Jews. 
talks about how they think the outward appearance is what really matters to God. And so their phylacteries, which are these leather boxes that have scripture written inside and rolled up, um, they wear on their foreheads or on their arms. Theirs are so big, obscenely big, that you can't possibly miss how pious they are. Their fringes on their, um, their ephods that they wear in their prayer shawl are so long, almost so long, that they're not functional. But that you couldn't possibly miss. Oh, look, he's wearing his prayer shawl because look at these gigantic tassels hanging out here. That's not what it's about. It's not about how big the cross you wear is when you're a Christian. It's not about what you wear if you have the best pair of Jesus sandals. That's not what it's about. Instead, it's about how you serve. And Jesus will say here the same thing that he will say to his apostles when they are gathered in the upper room. The greatest among you will be the servant, not the one who seeks to be served. And he says this because as he reiterates to them, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so if you want to be like me, if you want to follow, if you want to be a leader in this new thing that I am doing, then you will serve. And that's hard to hear because earthly hierarchy and earthly human systems love to have people who are served. Why work up to the top if you're going to spend all your time serving the bottom? And yet that's precisely what Jesus is calling. He's calling for a radical overturning of the ways of the world and including the ways that Judaism had engaged in. That they had built a system where the higher you got in power and authority and knowledge and wisdom, the greater the gap between you and those who most needed your service. And Jesus was not okay with that. Seeing it made him angry. He calls them to task. You think it's all about seeing, being seen for your tithing. You think it's all about being seen as pious by other people. That's not what's important to me. We are called as Christians to have tremendous faith, to put our faith in God, to recognize that we can't save ourselves, we can't save others, but that we serve, know, and love the one who can save us all, Jesus Christ. And we are encouraged to help other people take their rightful place in that gospel proclamation. But if we spend all of our time talking about how great we are, then we're not spending any time talking about how great God is, how great Jesus Christ is for his sacrifice upon the cross and his redemptive resurrection on Easter Day. Instead, we spend more time talking about us. And you don't have to be in the church very long to recognize that there are modern-day scribes and Pharisees. Not here, obviously. But there are people who like to have positions of power and they like to be recognized for what they do. Instead of seeking to serve and be remembered by God, they want everybody else to know what they're doing. And they don't trust anybody else doing it either because that's the other thing that Jesus was trying to convey to them is that if you truly are about conversion as the Pharisees and the scribes claim they are, going across sea and land was a euphemism for you would go to the ends of the earth to do this, that you will go so far out of your way to make a convert to Judaism and then you make it impossible for them to actually thrive. You give them such high standards that were not even what God was asking for. Did you catch what Jesus said that God wanted? You are obsessed with your tithing, and yet you have neglected justice, mercy, and faith. It's not about how you present the cumin before it's offered, but instead, are you striving for justice and mercy because of your faith? And they weren't. 
Their struggle was to make sure that people saw them as authorities, people respected them as authorities, and that they were served because they were the religious authority of their day. And that made Jesus very angry because the kind of wisdom and power that they had could have been used to uplift people, could have been used to make straight the paths of the Lord and help people enter into the kingdom. But instead, they hijacked the religion in order that they might benefit at the expense of others. And that will make God angry all the time. Jesus continues to lay on them more and more of the things that they do wrong. They're so obsessed with how they look on the outside. Did you catch the metaphor about the cup and the plate? You think that it's all about cleaning the outside. Well, what good does it do for you to wipe down the outside of the cup if the inside is tainted? What good does it do for you to wipe the outside of the plate if inside and what you serve on the plate is completely unclean? And Jesus says, if you start from the inside, the outside too shall become clean. This is what we call in the United Methodist Church sanctification, that when God gives us grace, that that grace works inside so that then it may be at work outside. That our personal holiness should become social holiness. And so we strive for this. We work diligently to make sure that it isn't just about us, but it's about us. And when we focus on that, then we leave behind the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes, those who were hypocritical, and we embrace this incredible egalitarian service of the gospel, that all are created equal. And one of the things that we struggle with as clergy is that it feels like we're supposed to be leaders, but then we're also supposed to model servanthood. So am I supposed to be up here in the front or should I be there in the back? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, I should be both up here in the front and in the back. There's a time for me to lead and then there's a time for me to get out of the way and let someone else lead. There is a time for all of us who have been given opportunities to serve in leadership positions to say that new voices, new experiences, new perspectives, new cultures, new ways of encountering Jesus Christ need to be empowered and uplifted so that they too can speak their truth and live out their call to the gospel. But in order for that to happen, those of us who are currently in positions of power must move out of the way, must step aside, and must create space for God to do new things and new people. Because there are plenty of times where I think to myself, you know what, I'm the pastor, I'm the clergy, I've got the seminary education, I've got the sacramental authority in my hands, I could just do this myself, it'll be done right, it'll be done quick, and it'll be done with a little bit of panache. But that's not always the point. Sometimes the point is that if we step back and recognize that that's a very difficult path down the ego, that if we are willing to step back and recognize that sometimes if we empower people, they will do it much better than we ever thought they could. And one of the greatest examples of that in my recent experience has been Vacation Bible Camp. Vacation Bible Camp is better now than it ever has been. And it's because I get out of the way. I let our church members create everything from the craft projects to the games to the stories to the decor around and I am blown away by how much better it is. Because I have some spiritual gifts, and clearly y'all's a clip mine there. And when people come up to me, the parents come up afterwards at Vacation Bible Camp, and they say, oh, our kid loved this. This was so great. This was so amazing. Then it's that moment where I have to go, 
Jesus calls for humility. And I go, yeah. And Karen Rubendahl was amazing. She's our camp director. And yeah, Amy David did an incredible job with the music and the dance and, and the, the program that the kids put together. And yes, I know you like that crafts and you need to talk to Julie Bowersett because those were genius. I could never have conceptualized any of that. But because I was willing to get out of the way and let them do it, it's better now than it ever was when I let it. And I just get to show up and enjoy seeing their gifts, their time, their talent, and their graces bless all of us so much better. Because otherwise, it was just one person. But now, it's a whole community of people that plan and prepare this incredible evangelical ministry that we have. And this is the job of the church, is to recognize that sometimes we need to find our voice and find our place. And then the hardest part is finding when it's time to go. And the United Methodist Church has always recognized this. But that's why we have an itinerant ministry. It doesn't want for us to become completely dependent upon one single leader because we have one leader and it's Jesus Christ. But instead, that we have clergy that itinerate. We will either be reappointed or we will retire or we will die. One of those three things will always happen. And because of that, we make space for new people, new voices, new experiences, new perspectives to be heard. And Jesus didn't want us to monopolize that, neither here on the clergy side or here on the laity side. That we should not be those who say, We've done it this way, we've got it going pretty well, and we don't want anything to change. That is the death toll for a church. When a church decides, I don't want anything to change. Instead, what we want to learn to articulate is, I really like how things are, I hope they just get better. I hope they get better. I hope more people are blessed. I hope more people come and I get to make new connections. I hope that my sphere of friends and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that just keeps getting bigger and better. Because when we decide that we think that we have all the answers like the scribes and the Pharisees, that makes God angry. And it also is the end of the growth of a church. And people experience the fullness of emotions. God created us to experience both the full negative emotions like anger and sorrow and the positive ones, joy. And the way in which we can grow in our emotions. But the difference is what you do with your emotions. That's the difference. Jesus is trying to draw our attention to the fact that when we get angry, as we should, there are times that we should be angry at what we see. We should be angry that people are suffering. We should be angry that people go hungry in a land where we pay people not to use their land to grow food because we grow too much. We should be angry that there are people that still suffer and feel that they are cast aside and unloved when we know how much we are loved by God Almighty. So those things should make us angry. And when we get angry, it's incumbent upon us to choose one of two paths. We can choose to react, which is that visceral, physical reaction that we have, or we can choose to respond. Jesus shows us response. He acknowledges his anger and his frustration. He names in a multitude of very explicit ways why he is angry at the scribes and the Pharisees. His refrain, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites, so that they can't possibly forget why he's angry. And he ends by saying, you don't even recognize what you've done. You are taking your place in a lineage of those who have killed God's messengers. What you may not be so aware of is that here in Matthew 23, we are two chapters after Jesus has entered in triumphantly on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. He is in the final days of his earthly life. And he is now confronting head-on the legacy of the scribes and the Pharisees, the fact that they are fine with making it impossible for people to know God's grace because they look amazing. The more bad people out there, the more the few good look awesome. And Jesus is not okay with that. So he tells them this, and he offers them a response. His response is that you need to look at yourselves. You need to walk away from this earthly desire for greed and position, and you need to return to your God. You need to return to the Torah, to the law that I came to fulfill, to liberate you from its burdens, so that instead of focusing on the the letter of the law, you could fulfill the spirit of the law. That's where justice, mercy, and faith come in. That instead of being bound by what you think are actions, you can be liberated by love. And he offers them that. His closing words were, you are not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's precisely what the crowds chanted when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. They waved their palms and scattered their coats and they yelled, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That psalmatic response to the arrival of the Messiah. And he says, you're not going to see me again until I come back. And everybody says it again. Until the second coming, you won't see me again. So my words are even more crucial because I'm not going to be here to point out every little thing that you do. But you know what you're doing is wrong. When it becomes all about you, then there's no room for it to be about God. And that's how we have to check ourselves as Christians. Because we do get angry. And people get angry at us. But what we do with that is what's important. If you get angry and pick something up and throw it, that's a reaction. That's not okay. Christians can't get angry and then visit that anger and pain and suffering on other people. That's wrong. That's when you move into sinful territory. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. But if you use it to cause harm and pain and suffering to somebody else, congratulations, you've just become a sinner. But if you use your anger and you develop a system where you have a safe space and you can articulate that, you can have a cathartic outburst and the safety and the sanctuary of those who understand that you're not attacking them or that you just need to have that emotional purge. And then after all of that is done and you've acknowledged and confronted your anger and then you say, now what do we do? That's the response. That's when you open yourself up and you say, we need to search the scriptures. We need to pray. We need to gather together with other Christians and we need to discern together as the body of Christ. What do we do over something that makes us this angry? And sometimes it's recognizing I'm angry because I'm hurt because there's a fracture in this relationship and we need to work for reconciliation. Or I'm angry because I see people going hungry and I see there's all this food over here and we need to figure out how to get this food to these people. How do we do that? That is when the response comes in. Jesus doesn't just point out a bunch of errors in people and then leave them to wallow in hell. 
Instead, he points out what's going on so that they may have the opportunity to change, to make things new, and to return to the way in which they were created. So when somebody says to you, oh, Christians don't get angry, God doesn't get angry, you just look at them and go, 39 verses. Matthew. But the difference is that we don't let our anger hurt. We use our anger as fuel to bring healing. That's the difference. Because we are going to get angry. We're going to get angry at each other. Some of us may even get angry at God. I'll never forget one time I had a church member who had been very faithful but very quiet in her faith. And her mother died. And she didn't show up to church for a few weeks. And so I called her and I said, how are you? I haven't seen you. And she said, I, you know, I, have, I haven't been back to church. You know, it's, I love it, you know, that stumbling that happens when the pastor calls you. She goes, I haven't been back to church. I just, I haven't, I haven't really felt like it. And she just stopped. And she said, do you want me to tell you the truth? I said, always and everywhere. She said, I'm really angry. I'm really angry at God that my mother's gone. I'm really angry. It hurts. It's awful. I'm not okay. I'm angry. And she said, and then I feel guilty because I'm angry. And I said, I don't think you need to feel guilty. I think you feel what human beings feel. I think you feel what Jesus felt. I think you feel what God feels. I think anger is something that God understands. And I can tell you this, if you're angry at God, God's big enough to handle it. God can handle your anger. What God doesn't want to handle is when you walk away and you no longer want to work together with God. So come with your anger. Come with your hurt. And there's a place for that here. There's plenty of room for that. And just maybe God will do what God does when we least expect it. God will turn our mourning into dancing. God will turn our anger into peace and joy. But if we walk away, that transformation never happens. And if we allow ourselves to only stay in anger, then we are also denying the fullness of human expression and divine emotion. That we are not meant to stay in a purely dark and negative place, that we are meant to travel into the bright and beautiful future of the kingdom of heaven. And so we have to go on this emotional journey. And sometimes it's a very inward and personal journey, and sometimes it's a more corporate, communal one. But there is nothing that you can think or feel that God has not experienced before. There is nothing that you can think of or comprehend that God isn't willing to talk about and journey with you through. And when people make us feel guilty that we are angry, unless we've picked up something and thrown it, when people make us feel guilty, they are wrong. They are wrong. Jesus understands your anger. Jesus himself gets angry. And I suspect that at various points in each of our lives as individual disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus has been angry at us. But yet Jesus doesn't want to stay angry at us. We have a Messiah, a Savior, a Lord, a Christ, whose love will always eclipse his anger and whose grace will always eclipse our sin. So yeah, he gets angry. We get angry. I believe that there is something truly holy when we discover that Jesus and us were angry at the same thing. 
But when we choose to stay in right relationship with God and work through that anger, work to use that anger to make a change in ourselves and in the world, in others, that that is when the gospel comes to fruition. But if we make it all about ourselves, if we make it that we want more people to see us and think that we're so awesome, then that's not the gospel. That's the path to the grave. And that's when churches that could be absolute insight into the kingdom to come become, instead of hospitals for sinners, they become museums for saints. And the faith that should be so alive and so vibrant dies because we think that we've got all the answers and that we're good just as we are. And Jesus is not okay with that. So as we continue our days growing in our faith and deepening our spirituality, I feel like Jesus is calling us to not only acknowledge the anger that we feel sometimes, but to allow God to transform that anger into a means of grace. Allow us to cultivate a response from whatever is hurting us and causing us pain and suffering so that some good may come from it. Don't forget that we serve a Savior who was humiliated, rejected, abandoned, unjustly tried and convicted, punished physically, emotionally and spiritually, crucified and left to die for a crime that he did not commit. And instead of bringing about the end of the world, he rose on the third day and offered all of us eternal life. That's the response to anger. May we too start to model that, not only for ourselves and our loved ones, but for the world. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.